Well, the BBC finally did it, so this show may have to adopt a new signature tune. Go! <laughs> in a lost summer. I had a bit of an accident yesterday, nothing too serious, but I've got a wee bit of a problem uh, breathing. Breathing. So if it all gets too difficult and the old iron lung sounds like it's about to blow, I may have to check out early. But we'll give it a go. Uh, if only for the sake of rule Britannia, Britannia rule the waves, Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. You can no longer sing those words on the BBC. Uh, for this year's last night of the proms, Rule Britannia was heard instrumentally only. The Beeb could probably have got away with it had they blamed it on the COVID. Uh, patriotic songs have to be bellowed, and that means a careless soprano could easily end up singing moistly, as Justin Trudeau would say, and projecting the Chicom 19 germs all over the strings and woodwind, uh, no matter how socially distant they are. But instead, the BBC explicitly tied their cravenness on Rule Britannia to Black Lives Matter. And at that point, the Beeb jumped the woke shark. They've been trending this way for a long time, of course. Last year, Rule Britannia was sung by a bisexual soprano wearing a dress made out of the bisexual flag. Whatever that is, it flutters both ways, presumably. Uh, and she produced a rainbow flag to wave for the final verse. My friend Douglas Murray scoffs that nobody cares what team the singer of Rule Britannia plays for, but actually a chick who swings both ways while singing Rule Britannia is one of my more persistent sexual fantasies, uh, even if I've never managed to find a gal willing to fulfil it over the decades. Anyway, you can read more about Rule Britannia, not about my... Uh, bisexual Rule Britannia fantasies, but you can read about every other aspect of Rule Britannia uh, in our Song of the Week department because we featured it there a couple of months back. Uh, this show's position, as you know, is that the British Empire is one of the best things ever to have happened to the world in the entirety of human history. We all know that. The facts of the case bear it out. And in fact, there was a recitation of them for satiric uh, but pointed and... Uh, factually accurate effect in episode 24 of our serial The Prisoner of Windsor. And those facts need restating in the face of cultural vandals like the woke wankers of today's BBC. Uh, as I said many weeks ago, when this hideous cultural revolution got going, unless you're prepared to surrender everything, surrender nothing. The idea that a century-old tradition can be obliterated because of know-nothing clods fetishizing a Minneapolis fentanyl addict from thousands of miles away is revolting, especially from an organization whose only claim on the public purse is that it is the curator of a great culture. Uh, I think we might uh, we might change the name of this show to the British Empire show. Meanwhile, in America, George Floyd mania expresses itself rather more robustly than in an antipathy to rule Britannia's lyrics. In Washington, D.C., the so-called capital of the so-called free world, 
Diners in restaurants get bullied by invading mobs into giving the Black Lives Matter black power salute and woe betide those minded to resist. Here is, as far as I can tell, the only one not to succumb at an upscale establishment surrounded by baying morons demanding she bend to their will. Zachary, and I'll be your server. Can I start you with some fascism options? Insofar as I understand that lady's position, she supports Black Lives Matter, but feels there's something vaguely unpleasant and coercive about going out to dinner and being ordered to jump like a performing seal over the maple-glazed sea bass on a bed of arugula in a blueberry coulee, or whatever hideous gourmet travesty her DC eatery was serving her. She's right. She's right. But what the mob's doing gets to the heart of the matter. Show you support us or we'll smash your face in. It doesn't matter that many, most of the raised clenched fists will hardly be in good faith. It's even better to force you to lie. Uh, because as all totalitarian movements have understood throughout the last century, it's not about persuading you. It's an exercise in muscle. It's about power. What do the police do? Well, in almost every American city, they stand around doing nothing, even if it's a back the blue rally. And it's the organiser, Michelle Malkin, getting beaten up. You can back the blue, but the blue won't back you. Which leads necessarily to self-protection uh, and to a vigilante culture. Because you never know. That lady in the restaurant refusing to give the fascist salute, uh, maybe the trusty fundies and the psycho trannies will just have a big queenie fit and hurl her maple-glazed sea bass at the statue of notorious slavery advocate Abe Lincoln across the street. Or maybe it's happened to this MAGA hat-wearing lady in Gresham, Oregon, a big butch guy, or could be actually one of those psycho trannies, um, kind of hard to tell, certainly butcher than most of the cis males at these demonstrations, but either a big butch cis male or a big butch psycho tranny will jump you and pull your hat. You punched your girl! Oh well, she's not dead. She only got shoved around and had her hair pulled. That's mostly peaceful. Gresham, Oregon. Gresham, Oregon. What side were they on in the Civil War? Maybe next time they'll throw her to the ground, kick her head in, put her in a coma. You never know. You never know. But because the police are just standing around watching, you have to be prepared to do the job they used to do. And if necessary, if you want to live to shoot your way out. So, so far this year, five million Americans who have never previously owned firearms have purchased guns. For the very first time, five million 
new gun owners. By comparison, there are just under 700,000 policemen in America. Uh, so for every police officer who stands there, something like seven newly armed citizens take his place. But if the policemen are nowhere in sight or they just enjoy seeing you get beaten up as they apparently do with Mrs Malkin and you are forced to act, then the same public prosecutors who are letting out the same repeat looters and sackers night after night will throw the book at you as they're doing to this guy Carl Rittenhouse in Kenosha, a town most non-Americans have never heard of, but which is now afflicted by what CNN calls, quote, fiery but mostly peaceful protests as its reporter stands in front of a blazing building that someone presumably owns and has his property in. Kenosha. How do you know you're in a prosperous, white-collar, high-tech community where 73% of the citizenry have a bachelor's degree or higher? Because people are in the street torching the county courthouse while shouting, Death to America! The teenager who fought back against his assailants, Carl Rittenhouse, is being charged by the suddenly tough prosecutor with intentional homicide uh, and presumably will wind up on trial at that same courthouse if it's still standing. Someone started a legal defence fund for the kid on GoFundMe. So GoFundMe, guess what, boys and girls? GoFundMe shut it down. I've lost count over recent years how uh, the number of emails I've had saying, oh, read the Michael Mann case. Why don't you launch a legal defence fund on GoFundMe? Well, it's not difficult. It's because GoFundMe are the enemy. What part of that don't you understand? GoFundMe. Uh, at a so-called Republican convention event at the White House, a white-haired man was punched in the back of the head and kicked to the ground. Republicans are all old white-haired men, aren't they? As the demographic triumphalists on MSNBC and Huffington Post like to crow, they'll be dead soon enough. But soon can drag on a bit. 20 years, 12 years, 3 years, next April, and these guys are in a hurry. The media, the corporations, the internet monopolies, the highly selective prosecutors, the police departments, or at any rate, the, we're just like Jerry Falwell Jr. We just like to sit and watch police departments. Uh, the Democrat Party, the Never Trumpers, the Republican National Security, uh, Republicans for Endless Unwon Wars Super PAC for Biden, uh, all are on the side of the mob. In the words of the vice presidential nominee, these protests are not going to let up and they should not let up. I know that there are protests still happening in yes. major cities across the United States. I'm just not seeing the reporting on it that I, that right, I had that's right. for the first few weeks. That's um, right. But they're not going to stop. They're not going to stop. And that's, they're not, this is a movement, I'm telling you. They're not going to stop. And that should be, everyone should take note of that on both levels. That this isn't, they're not going to let up and they should not. And we should not. Kamala Harris, tough prosecutor turned PR lady for organised crime. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the culture later, but here's the problem with uh, the foregoing. I get uh, emails saying, why are you talking about ballet, Stein? That's just for libs. 
Uh, and then, why are you talking about Broadway, Stein? That's just for libs. Why are you talking about the Oscars? That's just for libs. And the telly and the pop music. That's just for libs. And then it turns out the only stuff butch enough for the American right, the NFL, NASCAR, country music, uh, is run by people who think exactly the same as the guys who run the ballet and the opera. And in fact, NASCAR treats you with more contempt than the New York City ballet ever has, because they're suckering you. And don't even start me on those vile China shills of the NBA. They should be shut down as agents of a foreign government. And so, in consequence, the right becomes over-invested in those very few areas of life that are not openly hostile to it. Uh, and then until they turn on you, uh, like the homophobic chicken guys did, uh, Chick-fil-A. Likewise, the right got over-invested in Jerry Folwell Jr. when the term cuckservative took off, a portmanteau of cuckold and conservative. One assumed it was mostly uh, metaphorical, but Jerry Falwell Jr. is a literal cuckservative. He likes to watch his wife having sex with younger men, indeed men who are the age of his students at Liberty University, where social relations between the sexes are heavily policed and sex outside marriage is forbidden. But at the same time, he's sitting in the room watching a 20-year-old guy shag his missus for years on end, according to Reuters. Uh, and indeed, if that is the end of it, and it does not emerge that he was a more active participant than presently admitted, uh, because he's in the modified limited hangout uh, stage of this process, and it's getting modified on a daily basis. But the point is, he's made his brand a fake. Liberty's a fake because at the same time he's banning co-ed dancing, he's getting off on pimping his wife out to the pool boy. Because it is banished from all the principal throughways of American culture, the American right over-invests in these outposts and it almost always blows up in uh, their faces. Which brings me to the final point I wanted to make about this We Build the Wall nonsense. Uh, I've been mentioning on our shows in the last week or so, uh, and for which Steve Bannon and his business partners have been criminally indicted. Uh, aware that proposing to build a 2,000-mile border wall through private subscription is inherently ludicrous, Bannon and his partner, this guy Colfage, started putting out a unique sales pitch. Every penny raised would be going to the wall. This was a volunteer organisation. Uh, neither Bannon nor anyone else would be getting a salary. So the millions rolled in, and then, according to the Fed's allegations, Bannon and Colfage started doing what everybody else does, setting up shell non-profits to sluice the money through to Colfage's wife for media work she doesn't actually perform. Now, the Dems do this too, obviously. No one seriously investigates the Clinton Foundation, where 6% of the money actually went to charitable activities. The rest was operating expenses, and nobody does a thing about it. But the rules are different for Conservatives. And because of that 97% conviction rate, regardless of whether Steve Bannon actually is guilty of a crime, he's almost certainly going to plead guilty to some crime or other. Now, Dan McLaughlin has written a piece at National Review bemoaning the fact that the $25 million we build the wall hoovered up, like Hunter Biden snorting lines of coke off his hooker's back, 
Now, that's me, not Mr. McLaughlin. Uh, that 25 million could have gone to worthwhile conservative institutions like the American Conservative Union or the Media Research Center or National Review. Um, the other day I was, uh, was it last week, I think, I was somewhat mocking of uh, Bette Midler's coverage of the Democrat convention. But, you know, Bette does her rah-rahing for Biden and the Dems, and then she goes back to Broadway and stars in Hello, Dolly! and makes a ton of money. But no one asks Steve Bannon to star in Hello, Dolly! And it's something it took me a while to realize, in part because I'm foreign, so I came into the politics of the American right via my work in Canada and the UK and elsewhere, and it's rather different there. But I've talked about it with the late actor Ron Silver and with Dennis Miller and so forth over the years. And Ron Silver in particular was very unhappy about it in the months before his death from cancer. Um, once you cross over to the American right, you can never go home again. And a side of him wanted to go home. Uh, once the stink of the Clinton Foundation becomes impossible to ignore, Bill and Hill and Chelsea just swan off and sluice up the folding stuff elsewhere. They'll still get seven and eight figure advances for books no one will ever read. They'll still get Netflix deals. Once Steve Bannon's enemies eased him out of the White House, once the Mercers, and I've known Rebecca Mercer rather well over the years, but once the Mercers eased Bannon out of Breitbart, there aren't really a lot of options. Bannon is said to be worth $48 million. Uh, he gets residuals from uh, Seinfeld. It's a complicated story, but basically if you see a Seinfeld rerun on Channel 374, uh, Steve Bannon is getting some money from that. So he's got $48 million and he's got nowhere to go in the prime of his life other than We Build the Wall, Inc. Right now, woketivism is awash in cash. You think of all the money the corporations are throwing at an anarchist group, Black Lives Matter. You think of all the A-list celebs taking their big Hollywood and Broadway money and throwing it at their pet causes without impacting in the slightest their ability to get the next book deal, the next sitcom, the next movie. And over on the small shrunken right, Steve Bannon has nowhere to go except We Build the Wall, Inc. And I can't even tell his particular non profit citizens for the American Republic, Minutemen for the American Eagle, whatever the hell it's called, from all the others soliciting me in my mailbox all day long because the principal activity of the American conservative movement is selling its mailing lists back and forth to each other. But if it's got a flag in it, if it's got an eagle in it, if it's got a Minuteman in it, you're basically giving money to some guy's wife for social media consulting she never actually did. Meanwhile, while we're circling the drain with eagles and Minutemen, the left command all the ground worth fighting for. If everything the feds allege is true, and who knows, because the handcuffs on Bannon are politically motivated, the timing's politically motivated, the massive up yours to all the rubes panting for the Durham report is politically motivated, then it's the nickel and dime scale of the racket that's so pathetic. If you're interested in saving Western civilization, the conservative business model is insufficient and will tend almost by definition to become a grifter activity, uh, as it certainly was for Jerry Falwell Jr. Culture trumps politics. 
Steve Bannon is a brilliant thinker. This was not the turf he should have been playing on and is certainly not the hill to die on. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance, tales that transcend genre, everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen tales for our time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com tfot. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. The end of August in a lost summer. I have found it rather dispiriting. The flora and fauna look the same. Fish are jumping. The cotton is high. But for most people around the world, there are none of the sounds of summer. The peal of children's laughter. The thwack of ball on bat. Whether cricket or baseball, according to taste. No music in the park. No parades. No fates. No festivals. And through the silence, the eerie feeling that this is how it's going to be from now on, as the fortnight to flatten the curve begins its third quarter. So I was thinking of a poem that suits my mood and remembered one of the very earliest English sonnets, in fact, by the man uh, who invented what we now think of as the Shakespearean sonnet. And no, that wasn't Shakespeare. Instead, it was Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, and thus son and heir of the third Duke of Norfolk. Lord Surrey was a well-connected man, a descendant of King Edward I on his dad's side, and King Edward III on his mum's. His sister was married to Henry VIII's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, Duke of Richmond. His cousins included two of Henry VIII's queens, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, uh, for neither of whom marriage to the king ended well. This summer sonnet is the simplest thing, an accumulation of the familiar features of the season, the birds and bees, the fish and flowers, the snake shedding its slough, its skin. But the poet is depressed, and to be depressed in summer is worse than in autumn and winter, when the landscape suits one's temper. Uh, Lord Surrey is the man who introduced to the English sonnet a very effective innovation, ending the 14 lines with a rhyming couplet, uh, which formal device he uses absolutely brilliantly here. Uh, the poem is called The Suit Season, suit meaning sweet, uh, and so I shall render it as such. I think the only archaism that isn't obvious is eek, as in also the green hath clad both hill and vale. Uh, first published in the very first anthology of English poetry in 1557, Tottle's Miscellany, Songs and Sonnets of Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, Sir Thomas Wyatt and others. By Lord Surrey, The Sweet Season. The sweet season that bud and bloom forth brings, With green hath clad the hill and eke the vale. The nightingale with feathers new she sings, The turtle to her make hath told her tale. Summer is come, for every spray now springs, The heart hath hung his old head on the pale, The buck in break his winter coat he flings, The fishes float with new repaired scale, 
hill. The adder, all her slough, away she slings. The swift swallow pursueth the flies small. The busy bee, her honey, now she mings. Winter is worn that was the flower's bale. And thus I see among these pleasant things, each care decays, and yet my sorrow springs. A poem from Me to You by Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, the sweet season, the sweet season. Lord Surrey was a reckless man and made the mistake of falling out with Henry VIII. He tried to persuade his sister Mary, the widow of Henry's illegitimate son, to seduce the king, and thereby wield as much influence on him as Madame d'Etampes doth about the French king. Mary was outraged by the suggestion that she enter into some kinky relationship with her father-in-law, as if she were Mrs. Jerry Falwell Jr. being asked to seduce Jerry Falwell Sr. And the proposition led to Mary testifying against her brother at his trial for treason. He was convicted and beheaded on Tower Hill, not in sweet summer, but in the depths of winter, January 19th, 1547. He was 29 years old. Lord Surrey has the distinction of being the last man to be executed by order of Henry VIII. There were worse things than a bum summer. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Our video edition of the Mark Stein Show with Kathy Shadel. Tal Backman and Andrew Lawton discussing uh, various aspects of the cultural scene prompted several interesting comments. RAC, uh, not the Royal Automobile Club or the Radio Amateurs of Canada, but an Arizona member of the Mark Stein Club, uh, makes a good point and uh, a not-so-good one. Uh, last year, being curious... To see the special effects in the latest Godzilla movie, beautiful by the way, I was most surprised to learn that the big guy and his monster buds are committed environmentalists. Who'd have thunk it? The female scientist in charge of things informs us of this startling fact, but is a bit short on details as to how the big lizard communicated his concerns. Anyway, the ensuing mayhem is just the monster's way of teaching mankind a lesson for destroying their planet. I kid you not. Lose the culture and you lose the country. It's really that simple. Uh, that's right. There's no way around it. Culture trumps everything. Culture trumps uh, the Constitution, which is why the rock-ribbed originalist Neil Gorsuch read transgender rights into the Civil Rights Act. So if you're talking about anything other than the culture, you're playing defence as the... American vernacular has it. Oh, but the Constitution says... Yeah, but the Constitution is whatever the designated swinger out of nine judges says it is. And in the end, Mr Gorsuch deferred to the culture. So lose the culture and you lose the country. That's right. And nothing else you do, such as who you elect or which judges you appoint, will compensate for that uh, in the long term. 
The point that's not so good is the uh, throwaway aside uh, that you went to Godzilla to see the special effects and that they're, quote, beautiful, by the way. Uh, that's actually part of the problem these days. Special effects are like a stage set or the lighting. If you uh, notice them, it's generally at the expense of the story. Richard Rogers had a great line, which I use a lot. In a successful show, the orchestrations sound the way the costumes look. So when it's all working, you notice the show. But special effects, so-called, are there to be noticed. And in that sense, they've deformed the way we react to story and actually made us more primitive about these things. There's a passage on that in uh, Broadway Babies Say Goodnight. I won't... Uh, reprise it now, but um, that I, I'm, I've never been more bored uh, than I am during the CGI battle scenes. Yeah, yeah, we know you can do anything. And precisely because you can do anything with the special effects, what you should be doing is using such special effects as are necessary to tell the story. Uh, Joseph Dornish, a Florida Stein clubber, writes on the same topic. We don't even necessarily need conservative culture, says Joseph. It would be nice if gay and trans culture didn't get pushed at every turn these days. I'm watching a documentary on video games on Netflix, and for some reason, episode three featured heavily this guy who made a game called Gay Blade that hardly anyone ever heard of, and it sounds like it's damn near impossible uh, even to find a copy until at least recently. Uh, it was made circa 1990. That's not the only example in this documentary of odd things to focus on. You're left wondering if the whole point of the documentary is to focus and highlight this kind of thing. I read something, I think, here on Laura's links about how liberals must destroy everything, and it led me to an American Spectator article about how they intend to destroy suburbia. It got me thinking about how they must inject this stuff into everything, from Star Wars to Sesame Street to Marvel comics, and that's just pop culture. Anyway, I would love it if someone started, not necessarily a conservative Netflix, but a not-in-your-face hyper-liberal Netflix that made sure it only appointed cultural conservatives to top positions to hopefully prevent it from changing. Yeah, Joseph, just to pick up the previous point, um, as long-time listeners know, I loathe Sesame Street. I never warmed to Mitt Romney so much as when he announced he was going to kick that welfare queen Big Bird off the public teat. Uh, so, uh, I don't, I think, I think I wouldn't, I didn't show Sesame Street to my own kids. Um, but the other two things you mentioned, Star Wars and Marvel comics, bring me back to that business about the beautiful special effects in Godzilla. Reality is very basic at the moment. A mob burns down a police station or topples a statue or drags someone from his car and beats him to a pulp. The car is uh, technology that's a uh, hundred or so years old, but the beating him to a pulp is primal and ancient. You can film all that very cheaply, as every night people do on their telephones. But the stories we tell in our time, you can't tell cheaply. To show the Incredible Hulk and Ant-Man ripping a hole in the space-time continuum is 
extremely expensive by the standards of these things. One reason why certain genres were always fringe in Hollywood, uh, creature features, sci-fi, superhero flicks, is because the technology did not allow them to be done very persuasively. You would be too aware that Superman flying through the sky was just a flabby middle-aged guy in wrinkly long underwear held up by wires. But now the technology allows them to be done super persuasively. So they've become the only stories we tell. And the real problem isn't that Marvel and DC are now hot for gay superheroes, for Muslim superheroes, for trans superheroes. It's that they're superheroes in the first place and they've crowded out non-superheroes. As I've said for years, they've quarantined heroism in this weird dead end where heroism-wise, unless you've been bitten by a radioactive spider, don't even think about it. All the best stories are about ordinary chaps obliged to rise to the occasion. That's what I love about The Prisoner of Zender by Anthony Hope, for example, and why I did my own contemporary inversion of it for this summer's Tale for Our Time. And yeah, I get it. The X-Men are mutants, and so people fear them because they're different, just like they fear the Muslim grocery clerk uh, or the gay brother-in-law because they're different. But the minute the guy who's different is different because he blasts laser beams from his eyes or he can turn into a human torch... It becomes an evasion, a way of not telling stories about us, um, particularly at a time when, as I said, reality is very primitive. You don't need to be the human torch. Uh, a guy can just rent a car from Hertz or Avis and drive it through a pedestrianised shopping street. Finally, Mark Shear, a first-week founding member of the Stein Club, says, Good art and good stories have something authentic to say about life. The facts of life, in turn, are conservative, as Mrs. Thatcher knew so well. The good parts of most any movie or other bit of culture almost always lean conservative, and that's true regardless of whether there is also an obligatory gay best friend character to advance the official agitprop. Yeah, that's another well-aired point of mine, Mark. All effective storytelling is conservative uh, because choices have consequences. Um, to cite another tale for our time, Scott Fitzgerald's comparatively unknown story, The Rubber Check, where he distills this central conservative fact of life uh, to its essence. A man makes the decision to write a check he does not have the funds for to get himself out of an awkward situation. And he has no idea that he is actually at the hinge moment of his life and everything that happens thereafter will be a consequence of the choice he's making in that moment. Same with the Jack London tale for our time, to build a fire. He's careless and builds the fire in the wrong place. Choices of consequences. But wokeness is a consequence-free world. You're a bloke, and you wake up one morning, and you want to be a woman. Hey, go for it. You're one of the psycho trannies on the streets of Seattle or Portland, and you want to burn down a store. Hey, nothing's going to happen to you. You can have made the wrong choices your entire life. You can be a petty criminal hopped up on fentanyl. Too much fentanyl as it transpires uh, and the consequences of your choices are so irrelevant 
that you can be beatified as a saint around the planet. It's not the most immediately important thing about wokeness, not when wokeness is torching businesses and putting people in hospital, but it is perhaps the most profound. The woke worldview renders storytelling impossible. Did uh, did someone mention video games a moment or two back? We got a little uh, video game illusion coming up for you. And now, Stein Online presents... Mark Stein's Song of the Week. Before the summer ends, there is one memorable headline I would like to revisit. It is one of the great truths of life that on a nude beach one finds only the people one would least like to see without their clothes on. But this truth has never been more profound than for Laura Rosen-Cohen of our Laura's Links weekly promenade around the internet, who was aghast uh, after seeing a story in the New York Post, Alan Dershowitz hasn't been seen at his favourite nude beach in months, unquote. I think I first interviewed Alan almost 30 years ago when he was representing OJ... Uh, and another of his celebrity clients, my old correspondent Klaus von Bülow, was the subject of a new motion picture. Uh, in those days, Alan brimmed with the healthy glow of late middle age, but even then I don't recall any particular desire to see him with his kit off. Still, we are all suffering from this lost summer, each in his own way, and judging from that New York Post headline, many Americans only go to nude beaches on the off chance of running into Alan Dershowitz. So for Alan and Laura and everyone else, I thought we'd have some songs for the nudist beach. Let's start with the B-52s from the 80s. We know a place where we are free. We throw our suits into the sea. Uh, and by suits, Alan means the Jeffrey Epstein case. Mrs. Schneider, Strickland and Wilson, and the Mrs. Pearson and Wilson. The B-52s from 1986. But of course, by 1986, it was easy to write a song about wanting to be on a nudist beach with the object of one's affection. It wasn't always so. Back in the 1950s, 
if you wanted to show naked people up on the silver screen, you couldn't because it would get classified as pornography and it'd be banned. But there was one workaround. If you made a film about naturism, showing hearty, jolly, earnest naturists bicycling hither and yon and playing beach volleyball and uh, so forth. Uh, one such of those films from 1954 was called Garden of Eden. Now, the 50s was the heyday of the big movie theme. Three coins in the fountain, love is a many splendid thing, do not forsake me, oh my darling. And Walter Bebo, uh, the producer of Garden of Eden, decided he'd like a big theme song too, just like any other movie. So he asked Jack Shandlin to write one. Uh, Mr. Shandlin had been born in the Crimea, but when he was a small boy, the family business was targeted in a robbery and his dad got shot dead. So mom and the kids fled, first to Istanbul and then to America. Jack Shandlin wound up writing the theme tunes to Deputy Dog and Rocky and Bullwinkle, among many others, and also for Garden of Eden, this sly pian to the joys of nature. Let's go sunning, it's so good for you. Let's go sunning, neath the sky of blue. Greet the sun every morn. Feel as free and happy as the day you were born. Let's go native, sun your cares away. Be creative, learn to live and play. Pretty flowers need the sun. This applies to everyone. Life's worth living when nature's given. Happiness to everyone. So let's go sunning. If you're wondering who that singer is with Jack Shanelin's orchestra, well, nobody knows. The producer brought her in because she wanted to break into the music business. And whoever it was, a young Connie Francis, Cher, Lady Gaga has kept quiet about it ever since. Let's go native, sign your cares away, be creative, learn to live and play. Pretty flowers need the sun, this applies to everyone. Life's worth living when nature's given. Happiness to everyone, so let's go sunning. Let's go sunning. If you're wondering where you know that song from, you might be a nudist. Or you might be a fan of the best-selling video game Fallout 3, where it gets played on Galaxy News Radio. Or uh, you might be a nudist video gamer. It's a big demographic, I hear. In 1954, one had to be all very coded about nudism. Greet the sun every morn. Feel as free and happy as the day you were born. Let's go native. And what were you wearing on the day you were born when you were so free and happy? Exactly. Uh, within a decade, though, 
One group decided to put it all out there and recognise that what most of the non-ideologically committed like about public nudity is the opportunity it affords to survey other people's points of interest. Here's the Four Preps, a popular vocal group of the late 50s. Their big hits were Big Man and 26 Miles to Santa Catalina, written by two members of the group. Uh, Bruce Belland and Glenn Larson, who also wrote this one. This wasn't so big because it didn't get a lot of airplay. The story of the girl without a top. The girl in a topless bathing suit came down upon the beach. The surfers gathered round her on the sand. They left so many surfboards abandoned on the sea. You could have walked the ocean to Japan. Through the periscope, the captain saw the girl without a top and ran the submarine into the pier. That song has its knockers, but some people seem to like it. Glenn Larson, the co-writer of that non-hit, went on to create a bunch of hit TV shows, alias Smith & Jones, Magnum, Battlestar Galactica... Uh, I would have liked to have seen what would have happened to Battlestar Galactica had the captain glimpsed the girl without a top. Better luck with the nudist beaches next summer to Alan Dershowitz and uh, to the many naturist members of the Mark Stein Club. I think it's about 87%. That will do it for today's show. We will have a last call special for you on Sunday. Hope you'll join us for that. Plus movies and music for the weekend. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.
All rights reserved.